So welcome back to the AEC Hive uh, podcast. We're really excited to be with you today. We're going to be talking about innovation in architecture, engineering, and construction. I'm Ralph Montague. I'm a director at ArcDocs and co-founder of the AEC Hive, and I'm joined by my uh, fellow co-founder, John Egan. John, you want to say a quick hi to everybody? Hi, everyone. John Egan, the CEO at BIM Launcher and co-founder at AEC Hive, and I'm looking forward to another great conversation today. So we're very excited today to be joined by a real innovator in the AC sector, Nathan Wood, who is the founder and CEO, which I believe stands for Chief Enabling Officer for Spectrum <laughs> AEC and uh, also Executive Director at the Construction Pro- uh, Progress Coalition. And uh, Nathan, you're very welcome. Um, I, I, lo- I love the hashtag you guys have at the CPC shared pains and um i think you know one thing we all share between the three of us is a, sort of a general frustration with certain aspects of the ac combined with a, a great love for the the ac sector and you know wanting to see things uh, become better so maybe we could start nathan with a bit of introduction from yourself yeah. and a bit of a talk about shared pains Absolutely. Yeah, no, and, th- and thank you guys for having me on. You know, I think it's, it's so cool when we, when we can have these uh, international discussions between, you know, what, what's happening here in the U.S. and uh, what's happening over there in Europe. So I'm, I'm a general contractor's perspective. That's sort of where, where I earn my stripes in the industry with uh, DPR construction that here in the US, U.S. is a top 10 uh, general contractor now, has really grown out of uh, healthcare and biopharmaceutical data center, very, very technical builder. And so especially having started in the Silicon Bay area in San Francisco Bay, really prided themselves on being forward with technology and, and very innovative. So I sort of really coming out of school in 2008, learned about everything that was possible with BIM and uh, integrated project delivery and direct digital exchanges, you know, throughout the supply chain and really trying to kind of mix up the whole system of how A, E, and C work together. It was it was an amazing experience, probably almost to my detriment because I feel like I drank the Kool-Aid in the beginning and kind of had this uh, very glossy-eyed view of the industry. And so I joined uh, DPR's corporate innovation team, where now you're visiting 18 offices across the U.S. and uh, a lot of different regions with different cultures and different contracts and different levels of appetite for innovation and really trying to figure out, you know, what is the the pain point? What is the problem that this technology is supposed to solve? Because DPR was very good at separating technology from innovation. I I was kind of one of the first folks that was a quote-unquote technology-labeled person or a BIM person that had been in the innovation group because they almost tried to intentionally focus the innovation on the culture because it is really about you know, people, process, and culture. But I think really understanding the role that technology plays, not shying away from it when you talk about innovation, but really how it complements it. But but really, it's, it's not the leader of it. The leader of it is the people and the process. So, you know, when we say shared pains through Construction Progress Coalition, it's it's really about those, those shared pain points that an architect, an engineer, a contractor, an owner, a municipality feels when, you know, they're not getting either the, the workflow preferences or the data or, you know, what, what they're expecting or what they're needing, kind of how we're failing each other is the shared pains that we all feel. You've been somebody who's kind of be centrally involved in innovation. And I suppose one of the reasons we started AEC Hive is we generally felt that innovation and research and development in AEC sector was pretty low. And, you know, the companies were spending probably less than 2%, maybe closer to 1% of revenues on research and development and innovation and making general improvements. And so the purpose was to sort of talk more about innovation and 
improving things. What's your feeling in industry in general? Like, obviously, you've been very involved, and you probably see innovation as central to all you do. But in in general, in companies like DPR and others, is is research and development high on the agenda? Is innovation high on the agenda? I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's it's not innovation for the sake of innovation. I mean, it's it's innovation for a true expectation of competitive advantage. And you know, a lot of times we, we go back to a, a long acronym WIFM. What what's in it for me? Really understanding what what are the motivational factors behind innovation and and the investment in innovation. And there and there can be multiple motivators. I mean, here here in the U.S., we've you know over the last uh, decade or so implemented or uh, come out with a basically an innovation tax credit of I think up to, up to 1%. And that's a lot of where the salary and, and all the overhead costs that went into this innovation team that I was able to be part of was partially because there's a tax write-off. And so, you know, like there, there's a lot of these kind of how, how do we get multiple win-wins between both what we can get out of the potential innovation, but also kind of short-term wins. Because I think if you're not solving both the short-term and the long-term, you're not going to be able to, you know, continue to move forward. It's either too idealistic or too short-sighted. Absolutely. So as you went around to the different offices and the different groups, what sort of emerged as some of the bigger challenges that the, the industry is facing? The, 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 when you talk about shared pains, so what, yep. what's emerged as these are the really big items that just seem to be reoccurring? And You know, it's interesting because we, we, we can almost kind of categorize them into two categories, our, our internal shared pains within our company and then our external shared pains that occur at the project level between companies. And so, you know, if it's the field doesn't speak well to the office staff or the, you know, detailing group doesn't speak well to the production group or, you know, kind of internally if the supply chain is broken down, that's typically because of a leadership and an organizational structure and a culture and things that more or less are within our control. So we actually, we, we like internal uh, shared pains because they're the easiest ones to address. I mean, they're, they're tough because it's people and culture and all these, you know, things that we don't typically like to address, but at least we can address them because the alternative, the external shared pains that if you're a subcontractor or working with a general contractor, you're sort of have to own up to whatever their contract requirements are. Same with a general contractor to an owner or a designer to an owner. You know, we, we have certain requirements that we have to fit within. So it's much more of a bartering, brokering kind of how can we work a deal type of an environment than it is something that you have complete control over. So we, we look at those more like roadblocks that sometimes we have to figure out workarounds for as opposed to barriers where we can really, you know, have a conversation, work our way through it. But it doesn't it's not necessarily going to be easy. So I think, yeah, that's the best way that I try and you know, separate all these shared pains that are basically boil down to either loss of data or duplication of data. You know, it's one, one of the two things. It's either, you know, waste because of duplicate data or, or risk because of loss of data. So it's one of those two factors. But I think what's more important is, is it internal to your company or is it external between companies? Well, I suppose there's a few other things that like it could be incorrect data, which obviously causes yep. a lot of problems. So late information causes a lot of problems. Yeah, so I suppose we, we normally think about data, when you talk about good data and bad data, good data is, you know, is correct. It's on time. It's accessible. It's available. And then bad data is the opposite of all of those. It's incorrect. It's late. It's yep. <laughs> uh, inaccessible or not available. And what and what are the specific measurable thresholds of each of those things? That to me is never going to be universal. It has to be defined at the project level, but yeah. the categories are universal. So the decisions are project specific, but the categories and the questions are universal. And I think that that's what all of us are working towards, right? Absolutely. Yeah. 
And I, I liked the, the reference you made there to what's in it for me because, you know, that, that speaks to incentives and often the way projects are structured into siloed organizations who have you know, a small piece of the pie, if you like, and a very specific mm-hmm. role within a, a, a much bigger role. Often the, the incentives aren't there to, to do good to the overall project when, when you're just focusing on getting your piece done and uh, not worrying too much about how your piece affects other people. Oh, oh no, absolutely. Well, and what we're talking about is linear versus circular uh, economies or, or, or business models. And we, we very much lived within a linear zero sum game, you know, create and, and dump uh, data all across that supply chain. You know, we, we've, we've, Often at conferences, seeing the graph of the, the shark fins of data loss that happen across each of those critical bear, uh, boundaries uh, of the supply chain. And yeah, until we really address that risk of either wrong data, manipulated data, missing data, wh- whatever, and, and also just the waste of the data creation itself. Th- those are the analog workflows that we really need to to first digitize and, and make them digital, but then also digitalize and actually change the workflow in a way that actually streamlines it and makes it more more efficient. Yeah, and BIM BIM by itself doesn't solve any of those. I mean, I was speaking nope. to a, a mechanical electrical subcontractor recently who said, even though the project was using BIM through design through construction, effectively said that the design models that they were getting from the consultant uh, engineers had to be thrown away. Like these were his words, and we had to start from scratch because there was no ways we could build what had been designed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so even though BIM had been used, it didn't automatically solve the problem there. Well, and a great a great analogy to that just real quick on BIM, you know, if you if you think about the whole car and highway system and how all that works, you know, BIM is the car. The car needs a driver, the car needs a, a highway that that's maintained, the car needs traffic rules that all other cars follow and other drivers follow. You know, it's just one car and you can build a really crappy car (laughs) and you can build a really good car. But yeah, thinking about BIM as really being the vehicle, but not necessarily the action. It's not driving, but it is the vehicle. Just back to your point there about the project actually using BIM. It's arguable that it used BIM if the models had to be redeveloped at the construction phase. BIM, for me, refers to the digitization of the construction process, and the improper digitization of the construction process is not BIM. So they attempted to do BIM, they didn't deliver on BIM, and therefore they had these inefficiencies. That is how I would look at BIM, and that's... That's just my my personal. Well, and that's the that's the trick of this of of the whole learning process because the the design process like the goal shouldn't necessarily to to build one single BIM right once and just have that be built. Sometimes there actually is value in rebuilding a BIM because it it kind of forced you to go through it. But what are the ties and what are the links and and how is it referenced? How is that handed off from when an engineer ends and when uh, a mechanical fabricator begins, you know, we, we don't clearly establish that line. There's way too much overlap in how far an engineer goes and, and how much, you know, rework a, a mechanical does. But there is some level of redrawing and re, re going through it because that's actually how you learn what the engineer did and how they were thinking. Um, cause you wouldn't be able to consume that just from a model itself. And, and models aren't smart enough. You know, we need to put, our, our, our cognitive knowledge and experience and 
skill sets. And, and that's why everyone says, you know, collaborate early, get all those mindsets in. But what we're not doing is we're not capturing those ideas. We're not capturing those insights into the model. Um, you know, and, and rarely we're even sharing it at all, <laughs> but kind of that, that, that's how I look at it from more of a builder's perspective. And you, you, you've touched on the points there about the real problems are occurring at these exchange points between mm -hmm. the different parties. And that's probably something that the CPC have been focusing on, you know, the, the data exchanges that, that occur, uh, transactions, if you like, between the different parties at the different stages. Do you want to talk a little bit about the, a the absolutely the, the yeah, exchange I, project? Yeah, and, and I want yeah, and I want to you know kind of clarify any any potential misconceptions that we're we're out there trying to develop any standards because <laughs> we have no interest in uh you know developing BIM standards or or data standards at any like we there's so many folks out there building smart and XBRL on the financial side and uh US Institute of Building documentation uh, on the reality capture side that you know the standards are out there what we're missing is the language to describe at the project level how they work together. And so when I talk about boundaries, um, a lot of this actually comes from uh, Lean and I have to give credit to Digby Christian and some research that he did. Um, he was a, the project manager on the IPD project that I first started on, uh, wrote a great paper for the International Group for Lean Construction on uh, the boundary of realization and, and kind of this four-phase project delivery um, and sort of extrapolating on top of what, what he did about five, six years ago We've identified essentially three different boundaries that separate the four phases of plan, design, build, and operate. And it's interesting because even if you look at Audis marketing and stuff, they say design, plan, build, operate, because they're still assuming the traditional method of you go to a designer, get a design, give it to a contractor, do the planning, and then you build. But in my mind, you know, you're planning at the beginning with everyone, and then you pass the first boundary, which is our boundary of alignment into that design phase that you're truly virtually building together and building that virtual prototype of what you're going to build and uh, doing design for manufacturing assembly and creating advanced work packages and, you know, doing all that stuff in that phase two in a very agile uh, sort of uh, methodology. And then really the, the next uh, boundary of realization, that critical point, if, if you're familiar with systems engineering, it'd be the bottom of the V in the V model, um, but that's where really the complete design gets released to be fabricated. So whether that's a, a permit release, whether that's a submittal stamp, you know, what, whatever your designation of passing that boundary of realization, define what that is and really protect and own that because it's, it's a really critical uh, kind of point of no return because once you're in that phase three build, it should be automated, it should be repeatable, it should be this you know, batch and batch and push uh, and linear flow just in time delivery. And we really shouldn't have any, you know, what ifs and go arounds and RFIs and things in that point, because we should have already asked them prior to that boundary realization. But again, we still have plans for them. We still have a way to attack them because they still might happen. But the the goal is to measure them in a way that they don't happen in build and that they do happen in phase two design. So that then you can finally get to the, that as-built handover and uh, kind of all those opportunities for digital twin at that boundary of certification. But again, what does that facility manager really need at the boundary of certification? And what are they doing to ensure that they've got the right data before they accept it into their system? Yeah. So so what specifically was the CPX project looking at, the, the exchange project? Is it, is it it's looking at those boundaries? and the, the types of data that's being exchanged at those boundaries? Yeah, it's a very macro level. I mean, so Common Data Exchange, CDX, is really 
try, trying to follow uh, just behind where the world of open APIs and, and open interoperability is going. I mean, obviously, you guys are very active in the Open CD initiative um, and and the, uh, getting IFC into JSON and uh, being able to really pick apart the different data fields because you know in in my mind where we're coming from is we want to separate the the metadata fields that the taxonomy structure from the actual where that information comes from and where it's sourced and really put the power into the hands of the project stakeholders to decide where they want to plug one data field into another. You know, almost kind of the, that visual that a Rhino or a, or I guess, Grasshopper or a, a Dynamo would give you of kind of that connect and play. But think about that for how you would do an RFI or how you would do a change order, how you would do a submittal and really working all that out with the team in the beginning. You know, that, that to me is kind of the, the idea of the, the CDX is that we've got an understanding clearly of those four phases, those three uh, boundaries that we just talked about. And that we also understand the different levels and tiers of risk that happen with our different documents. And so the kind of the other side of this is the tier zero through the tier four that we established of tier zero really being the, the common data environment that, uh, that we've all established and understood as, you know, what should be the accessible single source of truth of, you know, what's a reliable data that, that we can reference to build this project or the current state of the project at any given time. And so the next level above that tier one would just be any sort of Collaboration, reporting, daily tracking logs, you know, coordination issues, things that are not, you know, super serious, uh, kind of go into the tier one. But then we, we establish a tier two to really, you know, protect the spear and gap or protect the, the designer's liability that anytime something goes into tier two, okay, we need a formal design response and, and we've identified what that trigger is for what that response is. It could be an email reply. It could be a Slack reply. It could be a reply in someone's system, but what is that definition of from tier two to have a response? And then if that response has a cost or schedule, schedule impact, then it goes up into tier three. And so that's your, your cost and schedule control. And then once that's decided of what that uh, impact is, it has to be approved by the owner, which is where that tier four is. So is tier zero through tier four is kind of a, a language we use to try and separate, you know, what are the different documents as far as RFIs, submittals, daily ports, you name it, that are going to be on the project and just trying to form some categorization so that technology can better know how to reference and, and tag them, essentially. This sounds like a bit of ISO 19650. Oh, a, a lot of parallels. Yeah, like it's it's almost a visual framework for everything that ISO 19650 is trying to prescribe. And and so that's where, again, we're, we're trying to sit back and say, how can we be a visual language to help communicate what ISO 19650 is trying to say? And so, again, yeah, anyone over there that's in, interested in working together on that, you know, that, that's where we want to partner. And, and again, I can share some links to what we have online as far as how we're using the, the plug icons and, and the different personas and the documents and, and really kind of visualizing uh, what these workflows look like and helping to communicate where the workflow breakdowns are and also where the technology integration requirements, you know, are needed. And it's, it's like a codifying, effectively, what, what is good practice when it comes to dealing with all those issues, providing a, a, a sort of a, a roadmap. If somebody wanted to then turn that into to applications, you know, that, that you've gone through, these are the steps that have to occur and these are the, the people that have to be involved. And yep. Just on top of that, Ralph, it's, this is interesting, Nathan, as you know, with BIM Launcher, this is essentially what we do every day is develop yep. this framework um, to ensure 
information exchange between different technology providers, whether that be at the file document level or the object level within within BIM models. It sounds like, and, and what I'm really interested to learn here is that the standard does is it takes information containers and creates this abstract level on top of them to bundle those information containers together so that they're exchangeable in the form of a similar to a PDF. Well, I, I don't know that, but I do know like one again, just language that we've been using to describe the difference between a, a you know like a file or container based exchange yeah. versus I think you you said object or or just like a connector, right? Like what what is a direct connector that's going to plug you know metadata field in one system to metadata field in the other system, so that you don't have to worry about if it got in there right or if it was named you know it's just it's a direct connection versus this export of an IFC and import of an IFC and, and kind of hope that the data fields remain the same. But again, the backbone of what is IFC remains the same. It's just how you're passing the data rather than thinking of pa- passing the whole package, even though you only need three fields out of it. It's saying, oh, no, I'm just going to take those three fields from that package and connect it to this other database. So is it a file exchange or is it a, an API connector? You know, we want to we want to promote more API connectors and, and kind of create the, the capabilities for these different systems to, to be connectors. And that's really, you know, I think to your point, John, where, where, where I think BIM Launcher comes in and, and you tell me, we, we have three levels right now that we're kind of, uh, at least proposing for the industry right now of step one being CDX listed. So, uh, a BIM 360, a Procore, a Bluebeam, any of these that, you know, have some sort of an op- open API are publishing their <clears throat> So API capability endpoints that says here, here's what here's what's possible that you could do in all these different scenarios, so that uh, a BIM launcher can work with a project team to actually set up that project and and create the CDX validated uh, sort of scenarios of what data is actually going to pass from one stakeholder to another in each of these different steps of all of these workflows. Which yes, will take some time, <laughs> but that's that's why we need to invest that time. That's McLean's curve that says you know invest that time earlier and you'll you'll reap those benefits further downstream. And so, you know, really being there to focus on that CDX validation at the project level is what will allow us to start opting in and sharing more data at a, at a consistent industry level um, and sort of anonymizing that data. And, that, and that's where we get to that level of CDX verified that says, you know, whether it's, you know, here in the U.S. would be the Construction Information Institute, CII, or, or uh, Construction Users Roundtable, or, or some of these other organizations that kind of hold and keep a lot of data you know, it's like share it with them as their members so that they can create larger industry dashboards and larger trends that can help move the industry forward, but only when we're willing to sort of share that data in the first place. It sounds like what, what you've described there is a project that we have open source called the API Explorer essentially aggregates all of the APIs into a single <laughs> playground, if you like, so that you can, as as a developer, of connectors or developer of systems, I suppose, work out these workflows and how different systems can exchange information between, uh, between, between themselves or amongst one another. So if you have a look at the BIM launcher GitHub, you'll actually, you could, you could actually pull that project and, um, have a look. We, uh, I think we have endpoints for BIM 360. Aconex, Procore, I'm trying to SharePoint, PlanGrid. So uh, what I wanted to really come back to was PDF of information containers is the information container for linked document 
delivery and it's an yes. ISO standard. <laughs> but for me, that is a premature abstraction because we do not yet have the language for information containers. Was that, and one of the challenges that BIM launchers actually have in it is that in order to exchange information between different technology providers, we need to create these abstractions for the different types of information that we're exchanging between them. And I think that's exactly what you were saying as well, Nathan. At the moment, that is lacking. So we have a couple of different organizations across the globe. I know that CPC is one of them. BIM Launcher is another. Building Smart Open CD API is another. We're, we're all at the genesis phase of this growth of a set of technologies that will actually enable the efficient exchange between all these technology providers. Yeah. And until we can come together and agree on a common set of standards around the information container, we can't productize any of our solutions. And through that, we can't actually make that pervasively available to the industry. I think we have we have a huge huge problem on that front, and I think that unless we come together through a standards body like Building Smart, or we co- we go the other way and we, uh, BIM Launch goes to the US and starts working with you guys in CPC, I don't yeah I think that we're going to actually struggle. The main point that I wanted to talk or the result of this was that the visual language that you've created, I would also call a premature abstraction. And yep. the reason that I call it a premature abstraction is because we're not yet in the product phase. We're in the genesis phase. We're all trying to create this language. And it's, you know, the CPC version. Yep. We have an organization in EU called SEN who work quite closely with the ISO. They have their version. Um, and I think I, I've sent you documentation uh, belong to their their work before, um, before Nathan. And if anyone's listening and, yep. and wants to contact me, I can also give you um, uh, their, their innovation. And then BIM Launcher has our own innovation, our way to do this. And there is some overlapping concepts amongst all three initiatives. And information containers is one of them. I mean, 100% agree. Uh, <laughs> First time. <laughs> a lot of work to do. It, yes, to be and. Done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, That's excellent. But um, Nathan, tell us a little bit about Spectrum AEC and what you're doing. Yeah, well, and, and actually, I'll, I'll introduce Spectrum as I, I kind of respond a little bit to, to John's really good points there, because I think what you need, what you need is both, right? You need to both continue to advance what is possible with APIs and JSON and standards development and everything, but yet at the same time help. You know, we're, we're so far away on like an industry conceptualization understanding of really what's necessary. You know, like what what do I as a company need to have set up in my technology stack in order to have that conversation? at the project level effectively with a BIM launcher to really do this. And it's really, it's a weakest link innovation in that all you need is one of those project stakeholders to not know what they're doing to ruin it for everybody. And that, that's kind of been the, the, you know, red, red mark on IPD and, and BIM whenever it, it doesn't work is because it is a weakest link solution. And so, you know, my focus and like where, where I'm trying to solve this, uh, personally, both through, through CPC, uh, and through Spectrum AEC is sort of fr- from the bottom up and really looking at, you know, focusing on what's n- not working and kind of putting those pieces together. So, you know, with Spectrum AEC, I, I started that really off of um, some consulting work that I was doing while still inside DPR. I got to spend some time uh, in the Middle East researching and, and consulting in Denmark 
uh, with a contractor out there and re- really understanding how it doesn't really matter, you know, what region you're in, what uh, culture you have, what um, contract you're set up with. You know, there, there's some kind of fu- fundamentals of how the, these components go together and how BIM and really just digital transformation as a whole is implemented. And so I've kind of taken those experiences of both really, you know, intimately understanding the nuances of this industry, but also having learned all these, you know, new innovative techniques of design thinking and agile and lean and, and kind of how do we uh, create the, the cultural and process transformation that's needed for all this great technology to work as advertised. Um, so, you know, I, I try and be kind of uh, helping prepare the customer for all this technology that's coming at them so that they, they don't make the, that first mistake off the bat of expecting it to solve all their problems um, and kind of not, not putting in any of the work. And I think part of the challenge is the industry has spent a lot of time solving problems in bespoke ways. The industry does get buildings built and it does perform uh, at, at some level. Mm-hmm. And and many people within the industry have come across these challenges and they've come up with bespoke solutions to, to some of these challenges and and they feel heavily invested in those bespoke solutions. Yep. So when you come along and say, well, actually, you know, you've got a great way of doing things, but it doesn't comply with the way other people are doing things, they take that personally. <laughs> well, yeah. and, and I think we all know a lot of BIM consultants in this industry that have their bespoke way that they think is yeah. industry standard, and then they start uh, spreading that across you know m- multiple parts of the industry, and it kind of spoils everything. So, yeah, really having a unified voice at that level of, you know, how should we be, what, what questions should we be asking first consistently and can we agree on those um, and really letting the customer provide the answers and not, not trying to tell them that we have the answers for them. Uh, I slightly disagree there because, you know, often the customers are, are the people who don't know how. They don't understand. It, 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 you know, it, how things. They don't understand. Yeah, and they just really want it to work and yeah, they don't particularly want to get, I mean, I'm just thinking of, Booking a flight, for instance, you know, if you think how fantastic the airline industries work nowadays, that you can go online, just book a flight and, yeah, and behind this, there's some incredible complexity where you're integrating with information from airlines and availability of seats and uh, all sorts of things, which as a customer, you don't really care how that works in the background. You just want to put in your details, push a button, get an answer straight away. Yeah, put put in your car details, get a second answer, and confirming that your place is booked. And the complexity of how it happens in the background, you're less interested in as the customer. Uh, But obviously, if you're on the the service provider side, you have to be very interested in how that all functions and how that data flows between booking sites, travel agents, airlines, etc., so maybe asking the customer to provide the answer isn't the well. Well, so on that point, let's use the airplane example because I, I, at whatever point they now gave you the option to actually choose your seat, right? Because I think what we're talking about is the power of choice that mm. the customer does. They do want it to be easy, but they also want to have options. And mm. and what the very very sophisticated airline and very very regimented and very very opposite of construction industry <laughs> airline industry does is, yeah, is they're very, very sophisticated to give the power of choice to the customer while only giving them choices that are the correct answer per their needs. And so, yes, I agree with you, but we're a long way from that. And, and what we're not getting is we're getting a customer to say, just fix it for me. And, and but that's like saying, you know, 
I want to get on this flight, but I'm not willing to get there on time or do anything and then getting mad at the airline because it has its rules, right? So there is a certain amount of rules that the customer has to learn. And so how do we teach them those rules so that it is simple for them? Because the current rules don't work with within the BIM world. Yeah. Well, yeah, one of the things that I mean, yeah, sure. Sorry. Can I just continue on with that analogy while we're on it? Um, so prior to this fantastic travel industry that we currently have, we had travel brokers and travel agents. Mm-hmm. They did not describe or, ex- you know, explain to the customer how to, how to actually do, um, do travel, if you like. And there was a disruption in, so they were once the provider. So they provided the service to the customer. Customer came in, they said, yeah, look, this is how it's done. Whereas if we look at what's being done now, that's like for like with the relationship between consultants and, and clients, let's say. So, you know, if you look at, well, I suppose the provider changed in the travel industry that was the main thing so you had yeah. new companies come on web in it or companies that were enabled by the internet which enabled accessibility which enabled scale and innovation that uh frankly the travel agents couldn't contend with so if you look at who who in the construction industry are the providers today well it's the technology providers right so it's autodesk procore etc and if they aren't pushing these guys into a more efficient service or um, a more, yeah, a more efficient service and their business model is working just fine, we're going to have the exact same scenario as we did with the travel agent and the customer, where they're just going to feed the customer as much as they can until their market is disrupted. And I suppose my observation and question as a result would be what is going to be the key thing to actually cause disruption to the way that people consume services around the development of our built environment. So I think on that analogy, we have to uh, go back a little bit because who, who is each of those roles? Because Autodesk and them, they're software companies, but they're not Kayak, right? Because Kayak came in and replaced travel agents, whereas Autodesk and Procore and all these guys, and, and, and again, I don't know, maybe they are looking to replace Contractors replace architects. I don't think so anytime soon. They're, they're a, they're a provider to the existing service that is supposed to enhance that existing service. So I think it's, it's really tough to, to take B, B2C business to customer examples and apply them to a business to business B2B industry. I think it's, it, you know, the closest example is probably healthcare and electronic medical records and looking at what like Epic systems, I don't know if they're international, but at least in the U.S has really done to become this kind of new hidden backbone behind how electronic medical re- records are shared um, and have really set a new standard, but not necessarily an open standard. And it's a little bit scary. Um, but uh, I don't know, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll leave it with that. It's, it, it's very interesting. We could talk about this for days of like, where is the transformation going to happen? What What is that Uber for construction? But the nice thing is, is we can literally look at every other industry to find the story of how they were disrupted because we're the last ones to, to bat. Um, but, uh, you know, making sure that we're riding the way forward with that disruption and not getting caught up in it, um, that's, that's really the strategy these days. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose I'll just pick up on, um, it's just something I have a little bit of a bugbear about people keep us saying that the client must drive change. And, uh, <laughs> um, 
the reason I have this issue is that if you know in, in any other service, if you go to a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant or you know the doctor doesn't expect the client the the client or the the patient to tell them how to do their job and how to do it with the best diagnosis and the best treatment possible. That's the doctor's role, you know. The so the the, the professional provider is meant to to be up to speed with the latest tech technology developments in in the medical industry and and offer their patients um the best diagnosis and the best treatment that's well yeah, it's, it's the what, re, it's the regulator and the insurer that drive that right <laughs> yeah. and so what what is the regulator and insurer in our industry you know yeah where maybe it's not the owner maybe it's the surety maybe it's the municipality and and in the UK it very much is i mean it's it's being driven by you know top down mandates and and i i agree that that is how it should be. I, I also know in the U.S. that's not always how it works. Well, it's just when you talk to, like, the most common uh, explanation we get from people as to why aren't you using BIM, for instance, because it's a technology that's been around for 20, 30 years, and it's just a better way of of uh, producing and managing information. You know, why wouldn't you do that? Uh, the, the most common answer we get to that is our clients are not asking us for that, you know, and um, – which to me just sounds crazy. Like, you, you know, this, this, uh, better way of working is available to the industry. And yet the, the service, the professional service providers, whether you're a designer or a contractor are not availing of this better way and not offering that to their clients unless there's a, a real stipulated requirement, you know, and even when it, there is a stipulated requirement, getting people to actually do it. Uh, can be incredibly difficult. <laughs> wow. um, so, so is anyway, uh, gone off gone off topic a little bit there, but well, it's it's it's, it's, a, it's, it's a shared pain, I'm sure. Oh well, yeah, I was gonna say yeah, this, this is with them, this is shared pains, and, and and that's the thing is you never want to just leave with like oh shit that sucks because because the the answer does come back in that case to educating an owner that that's an uneducated owner, and to me you know if if you're following that innovation curve, you know, Moore's law, uh, or not, sorry, not Moore's law, um, but, uh, uh, Jeffrey, yeah, Jeffrey Moore, um, and innovation bell curve, you know, don't focus on the laggards. Don't worry about them. You know, screw them. <laughs> Go focus on those that do care if you care. And, and I think it's one of those things where, you know, we're, we're, where I feel like is we're right at that chasm. If, if you've read the book crossing the chasm of that 15 to 18% kind of uh, adoption where once you pass that and, um, and can really get into, and, and I'm sure BIM as a whole is probably a larger adoption than that percentage, but I think kind of real value added BIM adoption where they're really believers and promoters is still probably in that, you know, 15 to 18%. And so what are we doing now at this very critical point of this, this tipping point of adoption to make sure that those early adopters that are kind of ready to take the plunge, but still a little bit unsure that, that we make them successful so that it continues to roll down that, that hill. Um, and not get stuck with uh, just the innovators and the early adopters. Mm, absolutely. If you look back, Nathan, in, in the last sort of year or two, and the work you've been doing, what what do you feel has been, you know, the greatest achievements where you've made great strides in innovation, and what do you feel has been the biggest barriers? Like you thought this was going to happen, and it just didn't happen for whatever reason. Just hearing with these languages, you know, that since all this COVID shutdown, we've been doing these uh, virtual roundtables once a month where we bring about, yeah, 70, 80 folks on and have, you know, six different roundtable discussions and being able to listen to each one of them after the fact and hear 
other people using the language that we've sort of slowly inserted into the industry and and really get, getting a broad group of perspectives to all kind of align their their understanding and align their language around at least what it is that we need to do, even though we may not necessarily know how to do it. Because I think we're, we're at that stage where everybody understands there's a problem, but, you know, they have no idea even where to begin with the solution. So, you know, it's, it's been really cool to, to see those discussions start to happen where people are at least, regardless, architect, engineer, contractor, owner, facility manager, we really are actually saying the same thing. Now it's, you know, how do we take that to the next level? And I think that the frustration and the barrier has been that I think I actually expected the world of the APIs to be a little bit further along than it, than it was. You know, the more I started doing research and seeing what was out there, I go, Oh, th- this, this should be pretty easy. But then once we start to actually get into that beta testing and that piloting phase, uh, it just, it gets really complicated really quick. And it just, it continues to teach me that, you know, that these things are always three steps forward, two steps back and just be patient, be persistent. Um, keep looking for the, those win-win scenarios where you, you really have motivated folks that want to see this happen, not just a, oh yeah, that'd be really nice if you can do that, but you know, they're not really invested in it. You know, you really have to find those folks on both sides. Um, of that exchange that are invested in seeing it uh, be solved and then really prove out those pilot use cases and, and continue that's to tell that story around the world so that others uh, replicate the success. Yeah. And that's, that's, I suppose that's a good segue into a kind of open closed discussion because I mean, that, that is characterizing a lot of the, the technology solutions in the construction sector are still very closed and even their mindset around them is, it is quite closed and it's, you know, you, you can use our system and we do all these great things, but we can't connect that or, you know, use it with another system. Whereas if you look at just technology in general, uh, even that's quite a new idea. If you think of how Microsoft just only a couple of years ago decided to begin to open up mm-hmm. the way they work. Uh, before that, you know, you, you were either a Microsoft client or an Apple client or, you know, or Google client, but you, you didn't, you couldn't really work with between, between those, you know, so you <laughs> have to choose which, which technology stack you like, if you like. Well, uh, go, and you go, be, but now. But let us remember though, I mean, this was even before my time, but early nineties, it, it was a big deal when Microsoft first put Word and Excel on, on an Apple Macintosh. And, you know, so like that, that actually has started a long time ago. But yet we still hold that culture because back then it was super shocking. And even now it's still kind of shocking when competitors agree that it's actually in their best interest to talk to one another. But I mean, that's the example I give is a Google Doc to a Microsoft Word uh, document. You know, I can make a comment in one, this very sophisticated thing with my name and timestamp and information, all this metadata. And I can save that as a different proprietary file type and open it up in the other. And it still works and brings in all that information. And so you know, I think that's just one example of the, the world that we're in today. And, and I would definitely separate the difference between I can't integrate versus I won't integrate. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of folks that say I want to integrate but they really don't want to integrate um, or say that they can, but they really can't. And so I think the capability versus, versus the true um, intention to, uh, you know, all, all I can say is, you know, the folks that are, are uh, construction progress members, Autodesk, Procore, Bluebeam, Newforma, Sage, you know, they, they really do believe that open API is where we need to go and, and are actively doing things to do it. 
it, it doesn't mean it's not hard. <laughs> it doesn't mean they're not struggling with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do believe that they have the right intentions and, and we need both that and, you know, the customer is willing to open that stuff up too before this stuff will, will ever happen and, and really come to the table and talk about it too. You know, it's the willingness and then also making time to actually talk through those scenarios and those requirements. Yeah. And I think, you know, when it comes to people on the ground, you know, the architects, the engineers, the contractors, um, you, you don't want to be forced to make a choice on a particular technology because somebody else has made that choice. You know, you want to use the tools because they are tools. So you, you want to, you want to use the tools that you used to and the tools that, that suit your, your role. I mean, if you, if you're a designer, you want tools that are, you know, that work well with design tools. And if you're a contractor, you want to use a, a different set of tools, uh, and rightly so. But, you know, often because of the closed nature of certain technologies now, you, you've been told as a designer, you have to use this tool that works for contractors because the contractor has decided. <laughs> yeah. You know, yep. And you're know, like, you're forced into the situation to use a tool. Not because it's it's actually the right tool for the job for what you do as a designer, but because somebody else in the food chain has made that decision and and the well, tool doesn't yeah. doesn't but, talk to another tool. <laughs> yep. But using that exact example, so that that's where we are close because if if you're in that scenario and a designer is using Nuforma and the, the, they're now required to use a GC system in Procore, there is a Nuforma to Procore API integration for submittals and RFIs that they should be proposing of saying, hey, rather than us needing to, you know, or like if, if you need it in your system, like are you open to using this, you know, API integration that can solve that? So like if we can come to the table with those win-wins when we know they're there, we can actually start to solve these rather than just sort of throwing our hands up and um and have another beer, which I'm I'm all for and I love doing that. But I'd I'd love to fix it too. So the more we're aware of what's capable, yes, it may not work in every scenario, but as long as we get the word out enough so that when that scenario does come up, we can we can solve that problem and tell the story about it. Because unfortunately we haven't found many of those stories out there yet. You know, the capabilities exist, but we're not finding the use cases because usually by the time we find about the find the shared pains, it's it's too far down the line in the project. And it's not kind of not worth it. So, like, how do we find that before the next project so that we can really solve it? That that's half the battle. Time yeah, is. yeah. I was actually going to ask that because, like, who the who has the incentive to build these uh, integrations? And be, be, you know, because it's as you say, people have just gone down a road and they've accepted the 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 pain, if you like. That mm-hmm. they've, they've they've lived with the pain and. Yeah, and and often they don't see the need for them as an individual company to invest in the the solution, uh, particularly if that solution might have a benefit to other people. Yeah, so why yep. should you? Yeah, so well, in, in, yeah, kudos to New Format. Yeah, my, my understanding is that in the new former example, you know, they, they were the ones that invested in the development of that integration through a third party, uh, to, you know, for their customers because they had so many customers coming to them saying, Hey, I'm being required to submit this up to Procore and now I'm doing a double entry. And, you know, so they, they, they do, you know, if there's enough customers complaining about it, I think that's, that's a little bit of the thing is we can get inside our own echo chambers and we think things are a big deal, but in the grander scheme of things, Maybe they're not. So I think really, you know, communicating these pain points and and not just the the cost of the waste of the inefficiency, but really the cost of the risk of of the data loss or the wrong data, like you said before, John, is I think the the um, selling point for it. And so that that's kind of what I always come back to is, hey, if we're frustrated with it that they don't get it, 
it's probably as much that they don't get it, but also we're not selling it or explaining it well enough, right? So how do we rethink how we make our point in a way that will be compelling to that person rather than just being frustrated and judgmental that they don't get it? And is that something that the CPC has as a role as a nonprofit that you can bring a voice to a whole lot of people in the industry so, so that the providers of these solutions see that it's not just one customer, but actually there's, you know, 20, 30, 40 customers within the CPC network that have the same shared pain. Absolutely. And, and organizations too, right? So if you, if you're looking to either, you know, test your, your kind of sales pitch or, or vent your shared pain to a broader group, that's going to give you a, a different perspective and, and not just say, yeah, you're right. You know, screw that. Let's go have a riot. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's trying to, you know, create, create productive conversations out of those frustrations and start moving the needle forward by really understanding what are those mechanics? What are the parts of the change that I can control and what are the parts that I can't control, but maybe I can talk to someone that can can have a better influence over it. Can I just uh, comment there? Because, like, from my engagement with the industry and obviously talking to our customers and potential customers, the problem is not the customers. Every customer knows that they're doing double data entry. If they have to transfer 9,000 files by hand, they know that they're doing double data entry (laughs) and they know there's no solution to do that. Mm -hmm. The big problem and the reason that I found that these solutions doesn't exist and Ralph touched upon it earlier was the business model for the vendors and the business model just isn't there. So like the, the vendor wants companies to, you know, if they're a project management solution uh, that's working across either all stages of the life cycle or one specific stage the, of the life cycle, they, they want their customers working within their solutions. If the if the, a particular feature doesn't work where you have to reach out and use a third party um, application, that project management provide a solution provider would prefer to build the feature for the customer than connect with a competitor's feature. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And what, and what I found is that, and specifically to your point about New Forma, New Forma built that connector, yes, number one, for existing uh, customers, but number two, for future customers. Because Procore's platform strategy is so powerful, it's something that... I've had customers, other vendors come to me and say, hey, John, we're thinking about actually taking a step back on saying, hey, to the to the industry, hey, we're a project management solution. And we're thinking about or calling ourselves an application. And as an application, Mm. we can plug into these industry leaders. We can plug into the AConnex, Procore, Autodesk of this world. Mm -hmm. And our customer base quadruples it. It it mm-hmm. it literally takes 80% of the market and now they get to focus on one feature and go deep on that. Yep. And that is the key driver for outside of existing customers, <clears throat> future, you know, the, the future yep. customer need. And that's yep. the business model uh, that I find, especially um, for vendors, that is really working. So yep. vendors don't want to lose out because their customers are annoyed um, at, you know, their solution. And you'll find a lot of vendors and even the vendors we're integrating with are all turned into a platform play. And the platform play is all about integrations and connections between solutions. 
And why is that because why is that so popular? It's so popular for the end users because they are getting the best in breed feature set that work effectively together. Yep. Well, and, I mean, and that yeah. I was going to say that's when that's when we'll know when when we're disrupted. To your point, there is when the business model changes so that it's not all about getting enterprise agreements that your company wants to roll it off roll it out across every project, but that it's it's actually transactional based uh, payment structures so that you you the incentive is for the software to be used and be paid by being used, and that uh, project teams actually select the best applications for the use case and and the payment models actually support that. Because right now the payment model supports, you know, picking one for your entire enterprise and trying to, you know, jam a square peg in a round hole on each of these projects. But the, yeah, the actual software business model itself needs to change. Um, and again, yeah, when and how that will happen, I have no idea, but it, it will, it will change somehow through disruption. Maybe blockchain, mm-hmm. right? What's the reach of the CPC? Is it mostly in the US or are you? Dealing with groups in Europe and the Middle East and various other parts of the world, or yeah, I mean, due, mainly due just to uh, time zone constraints. We're we're mo- mostly North America, so U.S. and, and Canada. Um, we do have uh, GeoSlam, a, co- a couple members that are in the U.K. and some contacts. But really, what what we're hoping to do is to kind of have groups that are in the U.K. or groups you know that that we have sort of a collaboration partner connections with. So AEC High mm-hmm. being a great example. Um, to sort of, you know, what are those cross, cross the pond connection points that we should be talking about? Cause, you know, there's probably some stuff that's very specific to what you're doing that, you know, we, we can necessarily kind of almost filter the noise a little bit, but there's other things that we should be sharing, um, between the two. So yeah, like how best do we do that? You know, would love to figure out how, how to create more of those. And I've been talking to John about m- moving one of our uh, virtual roundtables up to earlier in the day so that uh, we can have more uh, of our European friends join and, uh, and, and kind of bring their perspective to the conversations. Yeah, excellent. That sounds like a great idea. Okay, we've come up to the hour, and um, so I don't want to keep you too long, but um, do you want to give us any parting messages or words or encouragement to people listening uh, <laughs> well, around solving your shared pains? <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess uh, definitely, if, I mean, if you head to constructionprogress.org, uh, you, you can you can see uh, we've got uh, our own podcast, the Construction Shared Pains podcast, that, again, tries to dive deeper on um, – both technical and non-technical concepts, you know, any, anything from uh, diversity and inclusion to, you know, uh, mental burnout to APIs and RFIs. So it's kind of f- fun conversations uh, that you can check out there, um, as well as, you know, this whole conversation on common data exchange and uh, the CDX initiatives, um, all that information and, and some of those graphics that we mentioned are uh, on there to check out. And uh, if I guess if you w- want to follow me on Twitter, because uh, I know that's uh, a big thing, it, probably even bigger in Europe than it is uh, in the U.S., uh, I am uh, at Nathan C. Wood. Uh, the Construction Progress Coalition is at CP Coalition, um, and uh, Spectrum AEC is at Spectrum AEC. Um, so other than that, you can uh, always email me as well, Nathan at SpectrumAEC.com, um, and uh, just looking forward to meeting more people. I feel like uh, I- I've met more folks virtually um, since this whole uh, COVID shutdown um, that, that I wouldn't have normally. So uh, it's, it's always nice to, um, thanks to technology, c- continue to make these great connections. So uh, thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely, yeah. And it's great to have you on the show and the all, all the great work you're doing. Uh, we've been following for a while, and it's it's I think we're absolutely happy to work with you to spread the word of, of what you're doing. I think it's really important that we we solve these challenges. 
uh, absolutely the street. Yeah, John, any last words? I'd just like to echo your words, Ralph. I think that what you're doing with the CPC, Nathan, is fantastic. And I, yeah, anything that I can do to help, Ralph can do to help, AC Hive can do to help, to promote and give what you're doing a platform or help in any way, uh, please feel free to, well, reach out to me, please, because I'd love to help. And finally, I think, or I believe that our, our our paths are, are bright. We're all trying to solve this really prominent problem for the industry. And yeah, I'm sure our paths will cross amongst our, our explorations with the standardization of information containers and similar technologies to make this happen. So I'm looking forward to that as well. So thanks very much for taking the time to come on the podcast. And uh, thanks. Thanks to you as well, Ralph. Thanks, guys. Yeah, and, and thank you, guys. Just last point, I'll, I think you guys are definitely uh, way ahead in this world as far as, you know, some, some progressive clients that want to do this. So, you know, really where, where you can help is, you know, when you've got that story, when you've got that use case, uh, you, you're definitely further ahead of us. And we just want to follow behind you with uh, some kind of simplified CDX documentation so we can tell those stories uh, to our audience here in the U.S. So looking forward to keeping up with uh, both our innovation efforts. Excellent. Thanks, Nathan.